We'll turn, if you would, to Ruth chapter 1. Uh, we've just finished 1 Thessalonians, and so that's been a blessing walking through that whole epistle to the church. Uh, many churches get stuck there, don't they? So we do Colossians, we do Ephesians, we do 1 Thessalonians, do Ephesians again. And so there's a lot for us in those, in those epistles. There's a lot for us there, and I would argue we should be a bit overweighted to that section of Scripture. The New Testament is the, the primary revelation of Christ and of the gospel. And so, yeah, we want to be people of the New Testament, uh, where the gospel and theology and redemption and all of these things, the future of heaven, are so clearly laid out. But if we're people that take the New Testament seriously, that forces us to take the Old Testament seriously too, doesn't it? Uh, Paul said in Romans 15, I believe it's in verse 4, that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the, the scriptures we might have hope. And at that time, what was he referring to? What was written in earlier times? Well, it was the Old Testament, wasn't it? Uh, that was the, the Bible of the early church, was the, the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so I do want to make it a practice to, to go to the Old Testament from time to time. And I think a great place to begin that practice as a church is the book of Ruth. Uh, it might be a little bit uh, daunting for us to just to start through Genesis and try to make it all the way to Deuteronomy. Lord willing, let's do that sometime. Let's do that as a church. Um, but I think Ruth is a great introduction to the Old Testament, and especially all these narratives, all these stories you read. Uh, and I really want to show you how can you take these stories and see how they relate to life today, even as a Christian. And we'll see that in, in the book of Ruth. And so let's read just the first few verses of Ruth. We'll take it piece by piece, but we will make it through a whole chapter today. Uh, and so let's start reading in, in verse 1. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the fields of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of, the, of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they came to the fields of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the fields of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people to give them food. So much of the, the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, is, is filled with these epic narratives, aren't they? You read of all the kings, Right? So 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Chronicles, uh, the events of the Exodus. It's, 
these huge national movements and events. Uh, we read of prophets and kings um, and various events occurring on the world stage. And God, through all those events, proves and demonstrates and re- continually repeats to his people that he's faithful to them and actively caring for them. Uh, but in that huge mass of people, in that nearly two million people that came out of Egypt in the Exodus, it was made up of individuals, wasn't it? I mean, there were individual people. It wasn't just the nation as a whole. But the, the people there were made up of individuals. And you, like them, may ask the question, why, oh, I know God is faithful at the big level, at the major level, because I see that in, in history, in the history of the Old Testament. But what about the individual level? What about during this time of the judges, for example, when, if you know biblical history, it was not a good time uh, for most of that period of time, 400 years From 1400 B.C. to 1000 B.C., it was just constant turmoil. The Israelites were forsaking God to worship idols, and God would discipline them by by turning their enemies against them, and that would lead them to cry out to him, and there's these cycles throughout the book of Judges. Very tumultuous period of time to live in. But there were some believers during that time, weren't there? And so as God was disciplining the nation as a whole— what was he doing with these individual people there? Uh, was he, were they just caught up in that? Or was he fulfilling his promise to be their God, even as the whole nation around them was deteriorating? Uh, that's really the, the question of the book of Ruth. That's the, the subject of Ruth, is just how involved is God in the individual believer's life? How involved is he? Is it just at the big level, or is it at the meticulous level, in fact, every detail of life? There's a number of features of this book that lead us to conclude that this is a book about God's providence. And that word providence, a very important word, it's a word worth remembering and knowing. It refers to God's government. So God is creator, but he's also the governor of the world. So he's actively governing the world. He's actively ordering the events of history to unfold according to his plan at the national level and at the individual level as well. His providence. Three features of the book lead us to conclude that. that That's the, the major subject and theme of this book. First, there's only two actions in the book that are ascribed to God directly. In chapter 1, verse 6, we see the first one that God, Yahweh, his proper name there, Yahweh had visited his people to give them food. So that's the first direct act of God in the book at the beginning. But then at the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 13, we see that Yahweh granted her conception. And we'll figure out who that's referring to in the weeks ahead, but those are the only two direct acts ascribed to God in the book, but they form bookends for the book. So God's direct activity is both at the beginning at the end of the book, implying that the things in between are also occurring at God's direction. But the second feature of the book is they're just, it seems to be too serendipitous 
to ascribe to chance. The, the characters in, the, in this book just happen to be at the right place at the right time. They just stumble into the right field. Or they just happen to run into the right guy. And so the author of the book is trying to tell you that he's, he's strongly suggesting through the narrative itself and how he, how he lays it out that this is not just chance. This didn't just happen. These events are unfolding at, at God's, as a result of God's hidden providence. And finally, all the characters in the book are constantly muttering these little prayers for one another. They're saying, oh, may the Lord bless you. May you be blessed of the Lord. May the, the Lord reward you for what you've done. And as we get to the end of the book, we see every single one of those prayers were answered. And so all the blessings of the book are seen as answers to these little prayers sprinkled throughout the book. And so that's why many, almost all theologians and all commentators on this book would agree that that's the major subject here, is God's providence. And instead of laying it out in this scientific way, like let's dissect the word prov- providence uh, and treat it philosophically, uh, we see this narrative. That's why I love the Old Testament, just so you know. Uh, that's why God has given us his truth in the form of narrative, because it captures our interest. Uh, biography has always been a, a major uh, genre and many of our favorite movies, I mean, they're, they're people, real people, real lives, captures our interest. And so we can read about a specific person, a specific group of people, and how God's providence unfolded in their lives. Uh, you can't count on this being written about you, where, where some author will come, this omniscient author will come along after the fact and say, well, here's every little detail and why it happened. We can't expect that here. But what the Holy Spirit has given us is an example of a life, a real life, Naomi and Ruth and other characters here. And, show, and, and the Holy Spirit is showing us by example that this is in fact how God is dealing with all of his people, every believer. So that's the theme of the book, but let's just focus on the first chapter. What's the point of the first chapter? Well, the first chapter, it, it begins with a tragedy, doesn't it? And so, one of your most immediate, one of the first questions you'll have just when you hear of God's providence will be, what about such and such thing that happened to you? What about this? You're saying God cares for me. Well, there's been a lot of pain in my life. How do you, how does that go together? And we'll see here that there's no, there's not a glib answer given to that question. It's not just, well, just trust God. Uh, or it'll all work out, or don't be an, don't, you know, you have a lack of faith or something like that. There's a real, this person, Naomi, we'll see, she really struggled with the tragedies in her life. But let's set the stage a little bit for the story before we get into that. In these first five or six verses, the author is just setting the scene for us. And so we see first when this happened, it happened uh, at least a thousand years, probably 11 or 1200 years before Christ, long, long time ago, over 3000 years ago from today. And it was the time when the judges were judging, uh, a time of conflict, but there, was, there were peaceful intervals in that conflict, but the author doesn't give us much help as far as the exact timing of it. He just says it was somewhere in there. The exact the exact timing is not important to, for his purposes. 
And who were these people? Uh, Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons. Well, relatively obscure. Uh, We'll see how they're connected to King David, actually. They're actually his ancestors, as we'll see at the end of the book. But in their generation, they're just, they're just average people. I mean, Elimelech's not this big king figure. Uh, He's not a prophet. Uh, He's not a lawgiver like Moses. It's just this family that happened to live in Bethlehem. And where did they go? Well, they traveled from Bethlehem to Moab. And if you were to look at the map there, it's about 50 miles. So it's not the other side of the world or anything. Uh, They crossed the Dead Sea and they went to sojourn in the land of Moab because of a famine. Uh, Because of a famine. This was a a fairly challenging trip to make. It only would have taken seven or ten days, but it um, is fairly difficult. Israel, the geography of Israel is pretty dramatic. So Jerusalem and Bethlehem are in the hill country, almost 4,000 miles above sea level. And then it goes down into the Jordan Valley with the Dead Sea. Then Moab's right on the other side of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is 1,000 feet below sea level. And then Moab begins there and then rises almost 4,000 feet above sea level. And it's a rocky terrain, uh, not as fertile as Israel, but definitely able to support flocks and herds and and cultivated crops. And the weather is also very localized in Israel. And so it's only 50 miles away, but weather could vary dramatically uh, in that region. And so it's not surprising that they said, hey, let's just for a time until this famine's over, let's cross over and sojourn uh, to live temporarily in this other country. And so they live there. Uh, Those of us who know or who have read Deuteronomy may be thinking, well, this was a sign of God's judgment, maybe, uh, that these tragedies happened to this family because weren't weren't Israelites supposed to stay in Israel? Why didn't they just pray and trust God to, to end the famine? Uh, maybe uh, their, her sons were being disciplined. Maybe they died because they married Moabite women. Um, could be. But here's the thing. When we're reading a narrative, we want to respect the narrator. So there's all this stuff the narrator could have said. And to be frank, a lot of commentaries spend most of their time discussing issues that are unanswerable. <laughs> that the author himself would say, well, that." Yeah, I understand why you're asking that question, but it's just not that important for, for the purpose of the book. And so there's this, this silence in the introduction. We're not told, you know, why he died, how he died, if he was a wicked man and one of his a business deal went wrong and someone killed him and that was uh, expected or un- not surprising. We're not told that. Uh, we're not told if it was an illness or, or anything else. Same with her sons. Same with Naomi's sons. After marrying these two women from Moab, they, they died. And so the first thing we notice is there's no moral commentary. Uh, the, the author is not saying, well, and thus, you know, the Lord punished them for their sin. And that's one of the first questions we have, too. And tragedy strikes is, it, was this, is this punishment? And we start searching through the banks of our memory, what? What, did I, have I not done enough for God? Am I, am I um, in, in some sin? Uh, is God p- 
punishing me for maybe some past sin, and he's waited until now to get back at me. Um, that's not the tone of the, of the story here. So it's, it doesn't seem to, to indicate that this is a story of God's judgment. And about this, this idea of intermarrying, and so the, the Israelites were prohibited from intermarrying with certain foreigners. And many people assume that, well, this was a sin. This was a black and white sin for them, for them to marry Moabite women. And Deuteronomy 7 verse 3 does in fact say, you shall not intermarry with them, foreigners. But if we read that verse carefully, we would see that that's a limited prohibition to the seven nations of Canaan. So the nations that were living in the land of Canaan, in Israel's land, uh, those were the people being referred to. And so they were forbidden from marrying with those, intermarrying with those people. Uh, The person that wrote Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, the human author, Moses, you remember, he was actually married to a foreigner. He was married to a Midianite woman. And he didn't get a divorce from his wife. And so we have, to, we have to wrestle with that. Okay, that prohibition about marrying foreigners, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a black and white sin issue uh, with any nation whatsoever. In fact, there is, there's evidence that God always welcomed foreigners into Israel. He was always inviting foreigners to Israel and people could even marry with them. Uh, the issue was not their ethnicity, that, that was never the primary issue. The issue was their idolatry. Okay, and a case in point for this would be how God regulated the Passover festival. And he said, no foreigners allowed to eat in the Passover. In Exodus 12. Okay, no foreigner can eat the Passover. But then if you keep reading a few verses down, he says, if a sojourner sojourns with you, and celebrates the Passover, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it, and he will be like a native of the land. Okay, so we see there is a case in point. The issue is not a foreigner, just because he's a foreigner, participating in Israel's worship or living there. The issue is an unconverted person who is still identifying with idols. That person was not welcome in Israel. And the same is, in a sense, true today. I mean, believers need to only marry other believers. And so the, the primary issue is the same between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And God said in Isaiah that all the nations were welcome to him, even in, in that era. He said, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain And make them glad in my house of prayer. And so based on what we know later, what we'll learn about Ruth, one of these women that the sons married, she turned out to be a godly woman. She actually turned out to be a convert to Israel's God. And so it's not fair to see this as retribution. So the reason why I'm going through all this is to see, it's to show you that the narrator it is really not leading us to think in those terms, that this is a story of God punishing this family for anything whatsoever. We can't conclude that. There's no evidence that you could stand on to conclude that. But let's keep reading. Verse 6. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the fields of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people to give them food. So she went forth from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you, as you have shown with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is more bitter for you, for me, than for you. For the hand of the Lord of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. So we see here that Naomi, after being bereaved of her husband and her sons, her entire immediate family, and all the men, the male providers in her life, sees that there's no future at all in Moab. Uh, she's, she's there, an older lady, with nothing. No future. Uh, we're, we're, she's evidently not independently wealthy. Uh, she needs to be somewhere where she can be provided for. And when she hears that there is food and a harvest and that God is blessing the people again and ending the famine in her native land, she decides to return there. And she was dependent. And so she, she left. Her daughters-in-law see her, and even they're Moabite women, and they, are, um, they have families still there that they could have returned to. It's just too pitiful to see this old lady. Uh, have you ever had that feeling where you just see someone that's so pitiful? You know, there's nothing you can really do to help them, but you have to do something. Uh, and so just your initial reaction is just to, to step in and, well, I'll just go with you. Uh, so her daughters-in-law, that's what they did. They said, well, what else could we do? This poor lady, she's going to die alone. She's going to die alone. No kids, no grandkids, no husband. Uh, what, we can't just leave her. We can't just leave her like that. But Naomi, she's more grounded in reality. And she urges them to, to return. And she actually pronounces a blessing on them. She pronounces a benediction on them. She says, may Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you've shown with the dead, right, with her, their departed husbands and with her, Naomi. And we see this word loving kindness. So a very important word. And this is in that one of the first prayers that I mentioned. So I said there's prayers sprinkled throughout the book. Here's the first one. So, so Naomi, in the depth of her tragedy, even though she thinks it's hopeless for her, she, she pronounces this blessing on these two ladies. And she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you or show loving kindness to you, just like you have shown to me. This word is really important in the Old Testament. And so it's a bit like some New Testament words. Um, we don't want to be speaking Greek and Hebrew here, 
from the pulpit all the time. It's not, I don't think it's helpful to, to get super involved in that and try to teach you uh, a ton of, of the original languages. Um, but there are certain words that are worth knowing, right? In the New Testament, there's words like agape or um, uh, like, like God's love, God's love that he decides to put on people. Um, and that's a word many of us know just by hearing that from sermons or, or reading about it. Uh, this word loving kindness is a very important word. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. And it is sometimes translated steadfast love or loving kindness or to deal kindly, like you may have in your translation there. That is not just raw commitment. Sometimes it's explained as, well, this is God's covenant loyalty. And that's part of it. There's this, this big sense of loyalty that's part of the word. Uh, these women have been loyal to Naomi. But why were they loyal to her? And why is God loyal to us? Well, well the loyalty is something that arises out of a deep love for someone. So it's, it's the kind of love, the ideal love between a husband and wife. And the love they have for one another leads them to, to be bound together in covenant, in a covenant relationship with one another. And so they love each other so much, two people in this relationship, that they say, I want to permanently and totally commit to you. Not only to love you now, but to, to always love you in this way. And so loving kindness describes a relationship of total and permanent commitment rising out of a deep love and affection. And that's what she prays for these two ladies. But she also pleads with them to face reality. Uh, She says, come on, be realistic. Imagine you really do come back with me to Israel. Uh, You're leaving your whole country. You're leaving your your mother and father. Uh, You're abandoning any, any prospect of remarrying. And in those days, that was... Those were your career options as a lady. It was stay home with dad or get married. That was it, largely. And she said, well, if you're committing to me, even if you do come, uh, are you going to really forego marriage for me? Are you really going to grow old with me? And by the time I die, you'll be past your prime. Uh, Why would you do that? Uh, for them to go with her would really be to give up everything. We may, we may not sense that or be able to understand that here. We're pretty far removed, and there's such a heavy emphasis in our culture on being, uh, you know, you're a trailblazer. You can do your own thing. You don't need a man. You don't need a family. You don't need your dad. Uh, but back then, I would say it's more. it was closer to God's design where the, the nuclear family was, was the, the all-important reality for life and culture. So she pleads with them to face reality. Her situation is truly more bitter from that, uh, than theirs. And she even goes through all these specifics. What are you, let's say I got married tonight. Let's say I got married tonight. I met someone. Let's get married. Wedding tonight. And I conceived. I had twin boys. They'll be born bef- in less than a year. Are you going to wait until they're however old they needed to be to get married? No. And so in Naomi... Even more so than Orpah and Ruth, we can see an, an example of a truly bitter life. And bitterness is that word that comes up 
several times in this chapter. And so she represents, I mean, a real person, right? But she represents a bitter life, the bitter life of a believer uh, that sometimes can happen. So she has no committed companion to love her. She has no children to cherish. She has no hope of grandchildren to give fulfillment to her old age. Right? Even I've heard older people say that, that uh, grandchildren are a big blessing in old age and gives you a sense of fulfillment. Uh, even as other things that you, um, you miss about being younger, uh, that is replaced in a sense by the joy of grandchildren. But she, she won't have that. She has no family identity to give her life meaning or significance. Uh, what is her family known for? Well, she has no family. They're, known for, she's not, they're not known for anything. It's just her. And she has no security. So again, this is more than just a woman losing her family. Right? It's losing all of her security. So she wasn't getting this big check from the government. Uh, she, was, she didn't have a life insurance policy. Uh, she had nothing. I mean, your, your sons were your life insurance policy if your husband died. So this was financial and as well as a relational tragedy. And so here's a woman who spent how many years building her, the house of her life, and all of a sudden it just all collapses. It all falls apart. Um, it all shatters. And we see here that the Bible is realistic. So the Bible doesn't give us this fairy tale presentation of reality, does it? It doesn't say, well, life in the Bible is so happy. It's like th these kids' movies we see where it's all bright colors and everyone's laughing and there's, there's little adventures we go on, but it's all this carefree, easy, um, it's this easy, carefree life. It's not, it's not that way at all. Uh, the Bible was written in the same world that you live in. So all the things that you know and, and have happened to you, and, and probably worse, are recorded on the pages of Scripture. So this is a book about the real world, and many of our lives will have bitterness in them. Uh, we may not be at this low of a point as Naomi, but at some point we'll get close. We'll get close to this. And so as we think about God's providential care for us, for the believer, we need to first of all reckon with, okay, how am I going to respond when this happens? When tragedy strikes. And we're working through that with Naomi here. And we have to remember that it, God didn't create this world this way. Um, it, it's, it's not a, a simple relationship God has to the fallen world. He didn't create the world initially the way it is today. You remember, he created everything perfect. It was the devil and human pride that brought suffering and misery into the world. The Bible is the story of God reversing all of that. God's the one that reverses all of that fallenness and all of that misery. Uh, the devil does take pleasure in our misery, but God's the one that takes pleasure in our salvation. And so while there is, in fact, great suffering and tragedy in this life, we have to remember God didn't, he didn't create this world this way. And this is not the way it will remain. And so let's see what happens next to Naomi. In verse 15, her dialogue continues. Well, the, verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, implying kissed her goodbye. That was, an, that was a, 
a physical expression of um, parting ways. But Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Naomi said to Ruth, Behold, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to forsake you in turning back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, and more, if anything but death separates you and me. So she saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more to her. So we see here a remarkable expression of human loyalty, first of all. Uh, Even the Jewish rabbis that continue to read this passage, that's a major theme here in this chapter. Look at this remarkable woman that commits, even invokes an oath on herself in committing to her mother-in-law. And so there is for sure this wonderful example and this beautiful picture of extreme loyalty. I would argue that you would be hard-pressed to find a, a more dramatic or more extreme profession of loyalty. Again, Ruth saying this, she's giving up her whole life and her whole future and saying, my future is now going to be basically your caregiver. I'm not going to seek my own husband. I'm not going to seek my own uh, wealth or prosperity. In, In Naomi's lowest moment, we see this huge blessing meeting her, don't we? So Naomi's perspective, she's in the deepest, darkest pit. But in that deep, dark pit, there's this huge blessing in Ruth that is now clinging to her. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. He wants to see, look, Naomi, is, she feels at the bottom, but, but she's not. But she's not. And there are even people already gathering around her. And this is the way God's blessings often come to us. They're not, they don't come with gold-wrapped packages, and they don't fall down of heaven with diamonds and jewels. Often our, our biggest blessings come to us through just average people that we've already known for 10 years. I mean, they've, they knew each other for 10 years already. And so this was her daughter-in-law. But as we'll see in the book, the greatest blessing Naomi ever received in her life came to her in this moment with Ruth's profession of loyalty. The word cling is used in Genesis 2 to describe the marriage relationship where a husband would leave his father and mother and cling and commit to his wife forever. It even is used literally sometimes to refer to gluing things together. So Ruth, she she probably did physically cling to Naomi, hugged her. She didn't kiss her goodbye. She grabbed her and hugged her. And so that's the picture, both of them weeping, embracing one another. But how committed was was she exactly? Let's look at her words. She says, do not press me to forsake you. Meaning there's nothing you could say. you've, You've tried and failed to dissuade me from going with you. And she says, where you go, I will go. She was committed physically. Wherever you go, I will go. You're going to Bethlehem, I'm going there. Uh, You decide to move somewhere else, I'm going there too. She was committed even ethnically. Your people will be my people. People take a lot of pride in their heritage. Right? We're Italians or we're 
or if you're Mexican or, or German or, or whatever. But here Ruth is saying, no, I'm no longer a Moabite. I mean, ethnically, yeah. But from now on, my identity, I'm going to identify with you and your people. I'm going to totally leave my culture, leave my nation, leave the worship of my nation and go with you. And she said, your God will be my God. She was committed spiritually. And and this is not just her saying, oh, since I'm committed to you, I guess that means I have to start worshiping this other God. And at the end of the day, I don't really care what God I worship. I'll just flip-flop based on who my friends are. No. Um, This woman is actually converting to the worship of God, of the living God. And so her conversion to God is actually coinciding and going along with her profession of loyalty and her commitment to this woman. And you remember God invited all the nations to experience the blessing of his people, even to Abraham. He said, the one who blesses you, I will bless. And so this woman had learned of the Lord, of the living God, and she was now coming to God. And her first act of love toward that God, to the only true God, is to be a blessing to one of God's people. And so we see that there. She would love the true God by setting her steadfast love upon Naomi. But she said, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I I assume that you have made some profession of loyalty to someone in your life. I hope so if you're married. But I doubt that you have told them, wherever you're buried, I'll be buried there. The idea is that Ruth is professing her loyalty to death and even beyond death. Where you die, I will die, meaning Naomi would probably die before Ruth. Uh, There would be several decades, assuming, um, at least, between the point where Naomi died and Ruth. And she was saying, even when you pass away, I will remain where you are and where you live. And I will continue seeking your interests even in death. You know, if there is unfinished business, I'll be there. You can put that in my hands. And she even said, where you are buried, I will be buried. Meaning that beyond death, even beyond Ruth's own death, Ruth, words are just failing Ruth. And so she says, I will be so committed to you, I will be buried literally beside you. And I think that's true. I think she was. We have every indication to assume that that was fulfilled. Very serious profession of loyalty. You may, there maybe there is a grave in Israel somewhere today where Naomi's buried there and right next to her, there's Ruth. There's Ruth. But finally, to top it all off, she calls God to witness to this oath. And she she says, thus may the Lord, or Yahweh, do to me and more, if anything but death separates you and me. So the the words themselves are a little vague, but this is a formula in the Old Testament. So she said, thus may the Lord do to me, not really spelling out what, um, but it's implying may God punish me severely if I break this oath. And that's sobering to know that when we, when we take O's, and there are times when we can take O's. Marriage, it's appropriate. And other times maybe as well, oath of office. Those are really serious O's. 
Those are real. I mean, God is witness to those oaths and holding us accountable for those. And Naomi knows that. That's why she says, okay, I give up. <laughs> come, on, come on, let's go together uh, because I know what you just did. I know that, you, that this is an unbreakable promise you just made to me. So Ruth, Ruth is now chained to Naomi. But we would be mishandling scripture to stop there, to say, well, this is just this remarkable woman. Look at how loyal she was. You be loyal like her. And so honestly, this is how a lot of people interpret Old Testament stories. They say, look at this bad guy. Don't be bad. Okay, kids, see these bad guys in the Old Testament? Don't be bad like them. All these good guys, there's the good guy. Be like the good guy. Some of that's legitimate, but often there's, there's a, a bigger teaching about God that's connected to what's happening. And so here we need to, to do that work and think, okay, what is God telling us about himself through these two widows talking to each other? And it would be God's extreme loyalty to his people. Remember what I said, we need to keep remembering what we said about the beginning of this book is that the whole thing's about God's sovereignty and his care for his people. And the author wants you to see as everything that's happening, even especially the blessings, is coming from God directly. And so what can we conclude? Uh, we can safely conclude that Ruth is not just spontaneously pledging herself to Naomi. This is actually coming from God somehow. We're not told how exactly. Um, we're not told that that. God is using Ruth like a robot and forcing her to do things. This is Ruth's free choice. But still, the context of the book is telling us this is actually God caring for Naomi through Ruth. And so what do we learn about God through that? We see even in the darkest moments, the believer is still with God. God is still clinging to the believer. God's words... God is speaking to Naomi, in a sense, through Ruth. And we could ascribe those first words that Ruth says equally to God. Do not press me to forsake you in turning back from following you. So from Naomi's perspective, God is, he's turned on me. I'm done. So for some reason, I've gotten on God's bad side now. And now he's done with me. But then what is the, what is the first thing someone says to her after she says that? It's, I will always be with you. I will always be with you. And so we see that God is caring for Naomi through Ruth. And we see God's extreme expression of loyalty in caring for this widow in her darkest moment. And as Christians, we know that Christ himself is the supreme expression of that, isn't he? Uh, if we're impressed with Ruth, wow, this woman left everything for, for, this, for her mother-in-law. A uh, classic example of loyalty. I mean, how, let me ask you the question, how, who's more loyal? Uh, is Ruth more loyal than Christ? Uh, Christ? If you're impressed with Ruth, you should be impressed far more with Christ, uh, who is the same, who is the same toward his people. And he said the same thing to us, right? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, and Paul, writing in Romans, at the end of Romans 8, says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
And so the question, well, how involved is God in my life, especially in tragedy as a believer? The answer is a lot more than you think and a lot more than you feel. Because a lot of times we go based on our feelings and we don't see. And so can Naomi see? Does Naomi see what, what's happening? So she's, she's still mourning the loss of her husband and her boys and all of her security, um, all the, the dark future ahead of her. But does she understand what's just happened? We'll find out. So let's see what Naomi says next. In verse 19, it says, Then they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Yahweh has answered against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the fields of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi can't see what's happening. To her, it's just God's her enemy. He's turned on her. It's all downhill. I'm, I'm at the bottom, but I guess I'm still going downhill. That's all she can see in front of her. She tells the women of the town to call her by a new name, Mara, uh, related to the word Mary, the name Mary today. It actually means bitter. So she, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Okay, call me bitter. Say, hello, bitter. Oddly enough, no, no, one ever, no, no one ever calls her the name, by the way, in the book. So people disobey her request. They don't honor her request for that, which is not accidental. Okay, so Naomi's calling herself bitter. No one else is. God isn't. And what does she say? She says, in effect, God has turned on her, and she's not alone. Believers often feel this way, that that we feel as if our, our circumstances are evidence that God has turned on us. And even if he is not our enemy, he's withholding blessing from us because of, our, because of something he's found in us, uh, because of some issue he has with us. Job, you remember, he said, The arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. Have I sinned? What have I done, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? That's a believer talking. Why, why have you, God, taken your arrow, dipped it in poison, and shot me in the heart? That's how Job described his life. And there's some encouragement in that to know that, okay, you shouldn't have those thoughts, but those are thoughts believers have had, and there's counsel in the Bible to address those thoughts. When tragedy strikes, our mind will reel, our mind will be reeling like a drunk. And we'll rush to find a connection between what's just happened and God. And if we, if we know our Bible, we know, well, God's in control. God's in control. And I would say even most unbelievers know that. They would acknowledge God's existence in their honest moments and say, well, if there is a God, and it seems like there must be, because we're here, aren't we? Um, he's in control. He made the world. He made the sun. He made the moon and the stars. He made human life and all the animals and designed everything. He must be in control, or he could be if he wanted to, at least. So we'll rush 
to find a connection into, to Naomi. It's just her and God. Nothing else is happening. There's no great plan of redemption unfolding around her. It's just her and God. God has now turned on her like some sort of fickle tyrant. And she rushes to, to form a conclusion. I know exactly why my husband died and my son died. My sons died. It was because God has turned on me. And she calls him the Almighty. And so one reason why I, I want to read the word Yahweh when we see that word, which is actually the word in the Old Testament, is because God has many names in the Old Testament. So there's the Almighty. Uh, there is Yahweh. There's El, El Shaddai. Uh, and many others too. And so she's using this name Almighty, El in Hebrew, to point to God's sovereignty, to point to his towering sovereignty and power over life. And saying the Almighty One has turned on me and shattered my life. But we, we can't jump to that conclusion because it's, that's not the right conclusion in Naomi's case, as we'll see as we continue to go through the book. So we often ask the question, what does my tragedy teach me about God, but that's not the question to ask. That's never the question to ask. The question to ask is, what has God said? What has God said to me? Uh, God is not a simple being. He, he is not uh, simplistic in that his ways are not understandable by us. We can't understand exactly the ins and outs of how he's working. He says, my ways are higher than your ways, as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the, the, the most distant star is from the planet earth. That's how much higher God's ways are. And his ways involve human suffering, not in the sense that he maliciously plans them and executes them, those, those tragedies, but he's using them for his purpose. How? Don't ask me to explain how. Don't ask me to explain how. We, we're told that they produce good things in us. They refine God's people. Uh, but the, exactly how all those events are happening and, and your tragedies, we can't expect to know exactly what, how that fits into God's plan. And so we need to rely upon this infinite being and God, our Father, right, through Christ, communicating to us. So he says, no, don't try to figure out what I'm up to in every, uh, at every turn of your life. Just listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what I'm telling you. Uh, even the Ten Commandments, before he goes into the Ten Commandments, the first thing God says to his people is, I am Yahweh, your God. So he says, even as you seek to live a life of obedience to these commandments, know that I'm your God. I will always be your God to my faithful people. And that's what Naomi needed to cling to in that time. And so the text here is telling us, and it's leaving us with this question, is God my enemy? That, that's the question before us today. Is God my enemy? Because that's what Naomi concluded. That her tragedy was proof that God was her enemy. What do you think? Was God her enemy? How do you know? Based on the passage. What, look at verse 22. Look, look carefully. So she says, I'm empty. Naomi returned, and with her, nobody. Is that what it says? She returned with nobody with her. No one was there by her side. Just imagine being Ruth. She's, she just gave up everything to follow her mother-in-law. 
And her mother-in-law is still there saying, uh, I got nothing. And she's, she's right there. She's standing right there. <laughs> a, little, a little offensive, but Ruth is gracious and doesn't comment on that. And also, it says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So there's food springing up all around Naomi. And we'll see in the next chapter that God will provide for her more than enough that she needs through people. And that actually through Ruth, Naomi will enjoy even greater blessings than she would have enjoyed had all her, her family remained alive. But there she is, blind. Blind. And that's what tragedy can do. It can blind us to God's blessings. Uh, and we need to be careful of that. I just think, what blessings is God even right now pouring out on my life that I can't see because I'm so focused on my tragedies or my pains? Uh, even from Ephesians, right? Is Ephesians 1 in our heart day and night. Uh, that's really all our blessing. That passage, did you hear that? In Ephesians 1, it said that, that God has given us every spiritual blessing there's actually no blessing that God has withheld from us. He's given us every blessing. And we'll see how that unfolds in Naomi's life. But that is the thing to, to watch out for as a believer. To rushing to a conclusion that God is now your enemy without taking a step back and thinking, wait, what has God told me about who he is? And what evidences are there around me that God has not abandoned me? I mean, you may think, oh, I'm, I'm at the bottom. But I mean, we're he- there's people here too. There's people around you that love you, that are praying for you. Uh, you're not alone. You're not alone. And God's even providing uh, physically as well all of our needs. Such a great truth in this, in this chapter. And we will uh, go to chapter 2 next week and see how this story progresses. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this encouragement from your word. It is a, uh, hard for us to go through these times of tragedy and darkness and still have good theology. Please give us the grace to, to have a correct view of you and your character and your attributes when you bring us to these places. I pray especially for Uh, maybe some of us who will be going through these seasons soon, that you would now be preparing us and equipping us so that we can stand. Uh, We will be able to stand firm in the midst of tragedy. We do pray for comfort, that you would comfort your people that are being tempted to think these things, tempted to be angry at you, tempted to think that you have abandoned them. Uh, We pray you would draw near to them, and console them, and give them peace, uh, and give them the ability to cling to you and continue to seek you. And so we pray all this in Christ's name, and ask that you would help us to apply this truth to our hearts and our lives. Uh, We pray in Christ's name. Amen.